In 2006, the online world looked very different. Social media was on the rise, moving people from online gaming to networking platforms. Facebook had only existed for two years, Instagram wouldn't be launched for another four years, MySpace was trendy, and making online connections was thrilling. But for 14-year-old Carly Ryan, who longed to find her dream boyfriend online, was unaware of the dangers that lurked behind the screen. I'm Chelsea May, and this is Exhibit May. On January 31, 1992, a young 20-year-old single mother, Sonia Ryan, gave birth to a beautiful baby girl named Carly. Until her daughter's birth, Sonia's life hadn't been the easiest, and always said that Carly had saved her life by giving her newfound purpose and igniting a fresh chapter. As Carly blossomed into a young woman, the connection between mother and daughter deepened with Carly viewing Sonia as her best friend. In 2006, the pair moved to Stirling, located within the Adelaide Hills of South Australia. The area was beautiful and peaceful, but there weren't many things to do for a 14-year-old teenager. Having a population of just over 1,800 people, Stirling didn't have shopping malls, music venues, or even cinemas. For Carly, that meant hopping deep into the emo subculture. Contrary to the stereotypical angsty emo persona, Carly's disposition radiated trust, a joyful spirit, compassion, and boundless energy. Instead of wearing traditional dark emo clothing, she introduced a lively array of colors like pinks, greens, and blues, and even dyed the front part of her fringe red. During that period, many of Carly's friends were heavily involved in partying and drinking alcohol. On a particular occasion, she went over the edge, indulging excessively in drinking, which led her to be hospitalized and treated for alcohol poisoning. This ordeal deeply shook Carly. Feeling a strong inclination for a new beginning, she pondered the idea of venturing into online spaces as a potential avenue for connecting with different people. With a computer stationed in their household, Carly wasted no time after her hospital recovery and immersed herself in extended periods on the internet. Engaged in reading, posting comments and forums, conversing with her circle of friends, and forging connections on MySpace, her online activities were endless. Carly felt like her life was finally returning to normal, and she was ecstatic about social media and how quickly she found people with similar interests. With her mom keeping an occasional watchful eye, she managed to stay out of trouble and navigating her online interactions and connections. As she delved deeper into the realm of social media, her friends eventually introduced her to a MySpace user named Brandon Kane, who went by the online user Corrupt Koala. Brandon was 18 years old and born in Texas, but lived in Melbourne, Victoria with his adoptive father, Shane. As her conversations continued, she realized they possessed many shared interests and that he was exactly the type of guy she had always dreamt of. They shared a common taste in music, both having a passion for being musicians, and he described himself as a somewhat rebel with a soft side. Carly was fascinated by Brandon's background and loved reading his stories about traveling between the two countries. 
The relationship between the two progressed quickly. They spoke every minute of the day on MySpace through emails or texting and she couldn't seem to get enough of him. He would always say all the right things like how beautiful she was and how he would always take care of her. For a 14 year old girl, such attention from an older guy felt amazing. Carly was over the moon and Sonia had never seen her daughter so happy. While Sonia didn't harbor concerns over the sudden online relationship, she couldn't help but find Carly's fixation on Brandon rather strange. At the time, online relationships were new and the concept of two individuals being romantically involved despite lacking any real-life encounters aside from a handful of videos struck her as unusual. Over time, Sonia decided to establish her own MySpace account to monitor the pair discreetly, and through her observation, what she discovered were just two innocent teens engaging in friendly conversations. Their discussions spanned various topics ranging from music to traveling and their hopes and dreams for the future. As the pair quickly transitioned into a long-distance romantic relationship, Sonia started to warm up to the idea. Brandon's dad, Shane, also took an interest in the couple and frequently interacted with their posts, leaving comments that conveyed his approval. In January 2007, it had been 18 months since Carly and Brandon started their online relationship. And with Carly's 15th birthday on the horizon, she saw this as a perfect chance for them to finally meet face to face. Despite the obstacle of an 80-hour drive separating them, Carly eagerly asked him to join the celebration. However, things didn't go as she had hoped. Upon receiving the invitation, Brandon conveyed his regret, explaining that he would be in the United States during that period and would be unable to attend. He suggested that his father, Shane, would be traveling through on a work assignment and would be delighted to meet everyone on his behalf. Shane was a former SAS commando who now worked as a security guard for celebrities, often taking him to various cities. Apparently, he had even provided security services for Marilyn Manson at one point who Carly was a big fan of. Rushing to the kitchen, the young teenager handed the phone to her mother, informing her that Shane was calling and eager to have a conversation. Carly was super excited that she'd met, the, met this boy online, and I would look over her shoulder and she'd be having pretty normal conversations about life and school. And you know, I just believed that Brandon was just another one of her friends. And then one day she came to me and said, Mom, I think I've got feelings for this boy. I really like him. And I'd love for you to meet his dad. As Sonia accepted the call, he introduced himself and communicated his desire to bring a gift from Brandon for Carly, with the intention of finally getting acquainted with the family of the girl who had captured his son's heart. Despite Carly engaging in conversations with Brandon and his father for a year and a half, Sonia's maternal instincts came into play. She held her reservations about allowing someone who had never met to attend her daughter's party. Carly, however, begged her mom, and although Sonia felt uneasy, she eventually gave in but set forth one condition. Sonia needed to meet him in a public setting first. A few days before Carly's birthday party, Sonia and Shane planned on meeting at the main street of Sterling. As she stood there anticipating his arrival, a man in his 40s of average appearance with receding hairline, uneven teeth, and a beer belly approached. He was dressed in a polo shirt wearing his security company's logo. Shane willingly and confidently handed over a security guard license that confirmed his name, address, and profession. Her doubts about the man were quickly overshadowed by authentic evidence proving he was everything he claimed to be. 
As it continued chatting more, Sonia thought Shane was very normal and very polite. There were no red flags and Sonia felt she could trust him. So much so that after the meeting, she graciously invited Shane to stay over at her house after the birthday party as he didn't have a hotel room booked. It seemed fitting considering their two children were dating. Carly was overjoyed by her mother's approval of Shane's visit and eagerly looked forward to their meeting. When the much-awaited day finally arrived and the two were formally introduced, their interaction surpassed all of Carly's expectations. Having experienced the absence of a father figure during her upbringing, she believed that he helped fill that void she had always yearned for. Shane treated her to a shopping spree in Adelaide, indulging her with a selection of items, including t-shirts, bags, underwear, a corset, and costume dresses amounting to a total of $400. Additionally, he presented Carly with a gift from Brandon. Within a tasteful wrapped package was a sexy nurse outfit and lingerie. Although the present didn't align with her anticipations, she found joy in the fact that her boyfriend had her in mind and made a thoughtful gesture. On January 26, 2007, it was time for Carly's 15th birthday slumber party. As her residence began to brim with the presence of family and friends, a sense of joy filled the air as everyone engaged in cheerful conversations and laughter while relishing in each other's company. But it was evident that one person wasn't having a good time, Shane. Observing Carly engaged in conversation with a friend from her past, who incidentally was also her ex-boyfriend, Shane displayed signs of annoyance and unusual behavior. Taking steps towards her, he expressed his irritation, cautioning her that any further interaction with her ex could lead to him informing Brandon, which wouldn't end well. Feeling anxious, Carly agreed and maintained her distance from her former partners to avoid upsetting anyone. As the party continued, Shane's behavior towards other guests became increasingly inappropriate. He encouraged the teenage girls to kiss each other in front of him, even demanding Carly to kiss one of her friends. Another guest at the party overheard him talking to Carly, saying he loved her and showered her with compliments, emphasizing her beauty and reassuring her of his protective nature. While everyone else was deeply unsettled by his actions, Carly chose to overlook the discomfort and maintain a friendly connection with him, even if it meant enduring her own feelings of unease. Meanwhile, Sonia was not happy. She had placed her trust in Shane, allowing him not only to join the party, but also extending an invitation for him to spend the night in their home. Despite being strongly compelled by a sense of worry that urged her to have him leave her house, she made a dedicated effort to endure his presence for her daughter's well-being. The morning following the party, Sonia awoke before anyone else and proceeded to check on Carly. As she gently opened the door to her room, a sinking feeling gripped her stomach. Next to her 15-year-old daughter in bed lay Shane with all of Carly's young girlfriends. Everyone appeared asleep and although the man was fully clothed and on top of the covers, the scene was enough to deeply disturb Sonia as she screamed for him to get out of the house. He looked at Carly in a certain way and it gave me the shivers. And I thought, oh no, something's wrong. And you know, I kicked him out of the house and I said if he'd come back or tried to talk to Carly, I would contact police. 
As the girls woke up startled, Shane acted promptly, gathering his belongings in silence and making his way toward the door while Carly earnestly pleaded with her mom to mend the situation. But it was too late. Shane had stormed out of the door, got in his car, and quickly drove away. While the two stood there in silence, Sonia recognized the need for a serious conversation with her daughter. After the two sat down, Carly was overcome with a torment of emotions and tearfully revealed that Shane had not only slept beside her, but had unbuckled his pants and touched her inappropriately. After taking another deep breath, she started crying and admitted that Shane even told her that Brandon wouldn't mind if they had sex, but fortunately rejected him. In that moment, an enraged Sonia knew the right thing to do was ban her daughter from seeing Shane and Brandon and cut off all communication with them, even going as far as cutting the internet and taking Carly's phone away and threatening to call the police. As the days went by, Carly's depression deepened. Despite Shane's inappropriate behavior, she wasn't prepared to let go of Brandon. She pleaded with her mother to refrain from involving the police and to allow her to talk to her boyfriend, vowing to cut all ties with Shane. Witnessing her daughter's profound heartbreak, Sonia found it increasingly difficult to bear. Eventually, she gave in and agreed to return Carly's phone and refrain from contacting the police. Instead, Sonia composed a strongly worded message warning Shane to stay clear of her daughter, implying that she would involve the police if he didn't abide. Shortly after, she received a startling reply, threatening legal action against her for defamation. He went on by criticizing Sonia, branding her as pathetic and using derogatory language. He also stated that if Brandon and Carly persisted in their relationship, Carly would end up living in the residence. Following that email, Shane disappeared. On February 19, 2007, nearly a month after the birthday party, Carly arranged to meet up with friends in the city for a sleepover. Sonia verified the plans with her friend's parents and felt relieved to see her daughter returning to her usual self, enjoying her teenage experiences. Carly put on a cute leopard print dress paired with black wedge heels, then requested her mother to paint her nails in two different colors. After spending some quality mother-daughter time, Carly gave Sonia four massive hugs and told told her that she loved her before heading out the door. At approximately 9am the following morning, Sonia's phone rang. The caller's identity was unfamiliar and upon answering, the individual explained that they had acquired her phone number from a purse discovered on the sidewalk in an Adelaide suburb. Her instant realization was that it belonged to Carly. Sonia attempted to call Carly's phone only to receive no response. With growing alarm, she urgently dialed the parents of her friend who was hosting the sleepover and to her concern, they revealed that Carly had never arrived. In a state of distress, Sonia promptly ended the call, contacted the police and filed a missing person report. In her agitated state, Sonia provided the police with a description of her daughter's appearance. In an earnest conversation, they gently conveyed that they had discovered a young girl's body that appeared to match Carly's description. Filled with profound sorrow, the police offered Sonia the heart-wrenching decision to visit the location and identify the girl in person to determine if it was indeed Carly. 
Earlier that morning, around 6 a.m., a woman named Kim Gordon was on her usual morning walk when she spotted something strange in the water in Horseshoe Bay, 80 kilometers from Adelaide. As she cautiously walked closer, she realized a young woman lying motionless face down in the shallow water. Kim quickly screamed for help as a nearby fisherman named Ian Slade approached and together managed to get the teenager out of the water. They tried resurrecting the girl, but it was sadly too late. The Jane Doe was pronounced dead when paramedics and police arrived. Upon reaching the scene, Sonia maintained her internal conviction that the lifeless body couldn't possibly belong to Carly. As she stepped out of the car and hurried toward the motionless figure, she froze at the sight of the young girl's hands, which had the same shades of nail polish Sonia had applied on Carly the previous day. In that moment, she knew it was her daughter. According to the autopsy report, Carly suffered 19 distinct injuries with six out of eight being direct blows to her head. Her cause of death was a combination of facial trauma, smothering, and drowning. The assailant most likely pushed her face into the sand and threw the unconscious teenager into the water, leaving her to drown. After conducting interviews with Carly's friends, the police discovered that none of them knew why she would have gone to that area or with whom. As authorities began their investigation, they successfully tracked down CCTV footage that showed not only Carly, but the individual she had been with that evening. One video captured Carly outside the Crown Hotel in the coastal tourist destination of Victor Harbor, accompanied by two men. This trio was further observed within a fish and chip shop, a local subway outlet, and eventually entering a pale blue car. The last witnesses to have sighted Carly before her disappearance were a couple who stepped forward, reporting that they had seen her at the beach between 8.30 and 9.45 p.m. on February 19th, accompanied by the same two men. Eleven days after the murder, law enforcement located the pale blue car situated outside a residence in Rosebud West, Victoria. There, they found a 50-year-old man named Gary Newman on his computer, posing as Brandon Kane in a chat room and talking with a 14-year-old girl in Western Australia. He went to so much trouble to deceive us. Nothing could have prepared myself or Carly for a criminal like this. Little did we know he was operating 200 fake profiles of young men online to lure girls. So Gary Newman was actually Brandon. Newman was a divorced father of three who at the time had an adopted 17-year-old son living with him who regrettably became entangled in his unlawful activities. Authorities promptly captured Newman and the teenage boy was detained for questioning. After the incident at Carly's birthday party, it was suspected that Gary re-established communication with her posing as Brandon. Through persuasion, he managed to convince a young girl to overlook her mom's warnings and organized a face-to-face -face meeting with her supposed long-distance boyfriend. Disturbingly, the predator had used his own 17-year-old son as bait to play the part of Brandon, knowing that Carly wouldn't have left with him alone. I took her mobile phone from her. 
I cut the internet off. Little did I know that he had access to our home line. So while I was at work, he was calling Carly. And I believe that he had already been able to establish that real trust with her. She believed that Brandon was real. She believed that Brandon loved her. And little did I know that Gary Newman was planning to come back to Adelaide to, in his words, fix her up. So um, on February 19th, 2007, Carly came to me all dressed up and said to me, Mum, I'm gonna go and meet my friends in the city. We're gonna hang out. I'm gonna go back to my friend's house. Is it all right if I stay there overnight? So it was nothing out of the ordinary. And um, she skipped off the veranda and she said, love you, Mum. And little did I know, that would be the very last time I'd see my daughter. Gary and his son, whose name was not public, were arrested and charged with Carly's murder, and their trial began on October 19th, 2009 in Adelaide Supreme Court. During the trial, Gary denied all sexual allegations, claiming that he was a stepfather figure to Carly and went as far as claiming to be asexual. On January 21st, 2010, Gary Newman was sentenced to life in prison with a 29-year non-parole period while his son was cleared of all charges. All that I know is that at some point, um, uh, he, he made some advances towards her. I don't know whether he, he told her that Brandon wasn't real, um, but he attacked her from behind and... Um, pushed her face into the sand and um, murdered her, left her for dead. I don't know what she went through, but um, I don't want to think about it. I really can't. aftermath of Carly's heartbreaking passing, her mother Sonia chose to transform the prevailing sorrow into a force for good by establishing the Carly Ryan Foundation. This nonprofit organization was founded to foster internet safety and combat crimes against minors. Through education, awareness initiatives, harm prevention measures, and advocating for policy changes, the foundation offers support to both families and the community. More than a decade after the tragic incident, Carly's law was finally introduced. This legislation is focused on apprehending online predators who are plotting and preparing to harm or engage in illicit activities with children. The lasting impact of Carly's memory, safeguarded by the enactment of this law, and Sonia's unwavering dedication as her mother, thrives under the emblem of the Carly Ryan Foundation. To learn more about this remarkable organization, kindly visit CarlyRyanFoundation.com. I am living proof that love exists beyond death. I am living proof that there is hope for people who are suffering. And I'm living proof that everything we need already exists within ourselves. She is the love and light behind everything I do. I am living proof that there is love that exists beyond death. If one is able to connect to that level of love, if one is able to connect to self, if one is able to connect to their true nature, 
then literally anything is possible. this episode, please subscribe and follow me on Instagram at Exhibit May Podcast.